Greetings and welcome to White Run Baptist Church Online. I am Pastor Eric Newcomer, and today we're going to talk about commanding preaching. We've been looking at this sermon of of Peter in Acts chapter 2, and this is our third uh, installment of taking a close look at this great sermon and, and this summarized sermon that we have of Peter's in Acts chapter 2. So the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in Acts chapter 1, we saw or in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, we saw what was happening there, the miraculous things. It, it, of course, attracts a crowd as they go out into, apparently go out into the streets of Jerusalem and begin to proclaim the mercies of God, it says. And Peter stands up and he begins to speak. And that's where we're going to find it today uh, in Acts chapter 2. And we're actually going to focus in on toward the end of his sermon. And we want to look at this. We want to look at the use of imperative commands in this. You know, imperatives are commands in our speech and in our language. It is different from other moods of our verbs, uh, moods of verbs and uh, primarily what we see in a narrative like this or in an exposition of, of things that have happened is what's called the indicative mood. That is, you are indicating what happened or what is happening. But then occasionally we move to something more commanding. It is something that is an implied to the second person, in other words, to the person you are addressing as a command. And we're going to see that here in uh, Peter's sermon. We're going to join him right at the end as we see the crowd reacting. And what I want to focus on is the posture that Peter takes. No, not his physical, literal posture, but what is his attitude? What is his uh, demeanor as far as his message and the importance of his message to the hearers? That's what we want to take a look at today in this sermon called Commanding Preaching. So we're going to pick this up actually at verse 36, uh, where he has kind of a concluding statement, and then we're going to uh, go on through verse 41. So here's what I want you to take a look at today. Peter says this as he concludes his sermon. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So they received his word and were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for these words. We thank you for your servant Peter. And Lord, I pray today that as we review these words together, that you would give us understanding of the importance of these things, not only for our personal benefit, Lord, and our personal knowledge of you, but also that we may be equipped to rightly handle the word and the gospel truth as we take it to the world. Lord, encourage us, strengthen us this day to understand these things and rightly apply them. 
We thank you, Lord, for your great grace, which has shown these things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there we have the end of his sermon and the reaction of the people. And this fits with a pattern of scripture, a general pattern of moving from an indicative mood that is simply saying, oh, these are the facts and this is what has happened and this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus did to an imperative mood, which is, you know, therefore this is what you ought to do. And this is kind of a general trend we see in the scriptures. We see it in the letters most profoundly. And probably the easiest one to see this in is the book of Ephesians, in which Paul lays out for the first three chapters who Jesus is and what he has done for us in the plan of salvation. And then very purposefully at the beginning of chapter four, uh, turns that discussion to what the proper response ought to be. And from that point forward, the letter is filled with these commands, with these imperatives. Let me show you visually. I'm not sure how great it'll come out, but we'll take a look here. Let me show you visually Peter's sermon here. As we go through, uh, what we're going to see in his sermon is I have underlined in blue indicative phrases, and I have underlined, double underlined in black, imperative verbs. And so here we have the end of his sermon, and you'll see he's giving lots of indicatives here. See the blue underlining as he talks about who Jesus is and what he has done and all these things. Now look, all of a sudden he switches to imperatives. He says, no for certain. And then they say, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so you see kind of a trend where the beginning of his sermon, all the way back to the beginning, is filled with imperatives, or filled with indicatives, the blue underline. But then there are a few imperatives mixed in. Take a look at this first one that we're taking a look at here. Uh, he says in verse 14, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And that's his very first imperative. So he begins with imperatives and he ends with imperatives. He says, let this be known to you. And so as he stands up, he is commanding the attention of the crowd. The crowd is seeing what's happening and the disciples speaking these other languages are hearing the mercies of God in their own languages. They're perplexed about this. Some of them are scoffing at it, saying these must be drunk. That's when Peter gets their attention, says, hey, let this be known to you. And he says, give ear to my words. And so these are important. He's going to reiterate this in, in verse 22 when he says, hear these words, where he's telling them to listen up as he changes his topic from the fulfillment of Joel and the coming of the Holy Spirit to explain what's happening. He turns their attention now to Jesus Christ in verse 22 by once again giving an imperative, a command, hear these words. Now, this is a very common form of address. It is a command, but it's just like when we say, hey, look at this, that is an imperative. Or we say, listen up, that's an imperative in which we use at the beginning of something we are going to say, a discourse or something we're going to point out in order to grab the attention of those 
who are listening. And so it is very common for us to do this in our language. It was common in the Greek language. You see it very common in the gospel narratives as the gospel writer grabs the attention of the reader by saying, behold, there was a certain man, or behold, then he did this. And this word behold, this is an imperative. In other words, it's telling you, look at this, examine this, take a close look at this. And this is Peter, and he doubles up in verse 14. I, I wonder if you noticed that. Two right in a row. Let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. And he does it again in verse 22, and he does it again in his closing uh, remarks here in verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. So what this is like, what Peter is doing here, is this is like the attention tones that are on the emergency alert system. And I don't know if you remember that, but for weather, natural disasters, or whatever, for various reasons, the Federal Communications Commission and other local authorities have the authority to interrupt any kind of a broadcast. And you've seen this, you remember it when you were a child interrupting your Saturday morning television. But there's also a modern version of this using cell phones, where every cell phone in operation can be interrupted and suddenly given a message. It'll override the silent mode of your phone. It'll interrupt whatever it is you're doing on your phone, whether you're talking to someone or watching the silly cat videos I know you watch. This can override those things. It's the emergency alert system. Now, I remember when I was a child and watching television and all of a sudden with no warning, they would interrupt with these loud tones that seemed even louder than the commercials, if you can believe that. And these loud tones would blare one after the other. I will not try to imitate these tones. I thought it would be amusing to put a video on here of the emergency alert system and play the tones for you. But then as I began looking for them and reading, I found there might be some legal implications of doing that if it's not a real emergency. And so I, uh, I decided not to do that. I decided to rather rely on your understanding and your remembrance of these things. You know these to be true. They would interrupt and they would say, this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. The broadcasters in, uh, in your area in voluntary cooperation with the federal, state, and local authorities have developed this system to keep you informed in the event of an emergency. If this had been an actual emergency, the attention signal you just heard would have been followed by official information, news, or instructions. And they would say a few other things about what station it was, and then it would stop at the end. It would say, this concludes this test of the emergency broadcast system. It was always only a test, except once or twice in my life in the event of tornadoes when it uh, gave us some very relevant information about precisely where these systems were and these storms were in order to warn those who might be in the path. But this is how I want you to regard the gospel. And, and this is the example we're given because this is how the apostles regarded the gospel. This is how they understood the gospel, that this is worth interrupting someone's day for. This is worth overriding whatever it is they're doing and say, oh, no, 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 look here, listen to this. This is what I have to say. The message of the gospel is more important than anything any human being can be doing at any moment. Yes, 
even life and death situations, especially life and death situations, because the gospel is about eternal life or eternal death. It is the, our proclamation of the gospel is the emergency alert system from heaven. And we break into this world with all the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Look what Jesus said as he prefaces what we call the Great Commission here in Matthew chapter 28, near the end of the, the book of Matthew here. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And one of the last things he reiterates to his, uh, to his disciples is this, their mission. And he says this, he says, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. So it is from this position of all authority in heaven and on earth. In other words, for you to go and make disciples, for you to spread the gospel, there is no higher authority. You can interrupt absolutely anything going on on the planet with your message of truth and salvation in Jesus Christ. See, our kingdom is not of this world. Our kingdom is above this world. Our kingdom's not of this world. It is above this world. We serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Look at what Peter concludes here in Acts 2.36. When he gets their attention again, he says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's the boss, and he has sent us with his authority to go and spread this gospel truth. Now, we respect local authorities and we obey local authorities so long as it does not conflict with the prerogatives of Jesus Christ in our lives. This is tested very soon, as we're going to see in the coming chapters. These disciples right away are tested on this issue because the very same authorities that crucified Jesus Christ are going to arrest them and tell them not to preach this message anymore. And their response is going to be very simple. He's going to say, whether it's in right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. So he puts it back on them and say, you think about this, whether we ought to listen to God or listen to you, is Peter's argument before these very same people crucified Jesus. They reiterate it a chapter later. Peter and the apostles answered, answered we must obey God rather than men. This gospel truth is so important. Let this be known to you, he begins. And in a way, he ends it with saying no for certain. It's the same word, gnosko, a common word for knowing. He gets their attention with this, let this be known to you, and he wraps up with this, know then for certain. This little word that's translated for certain here means safely or assuredly. The only other two times this word is used in the scriptures, it is used to speak of, of keeping someone in prison. Look what it says in Mark 14, uh, He says, seize him and lead him away under guard. Okay, under guard 
is how this is translated there. In other words, this is watched carefully. You are not going to let them get away. This is also in Acts chapter 16 as Paul and Silas are, are imprisoned. And it says this, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Okay, safely is the word translated here that we find back there in Acts 2.36, which is translated as for certain. Keep it under guard. Take great care to secure this information. Peter puts a value on what he has just said. He doesn't say, hey, you know, take this little uh, piece of literature we're going to give you and throw it somewhere at home and it's really not important. And maybe if you get time sometime in your life, you can take a look at that. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying this is important. Know it and know it for certain. He's telling his hearers they must know this. This is a knowledge with a certainty that he's looking for here. This is exemplified in a group of people uh, from Berea who are known as Bereans because they're from Berea. And as Paul was preaching there, listen to what they did. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. So it's contrasting them with the place Paul had just been. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. These were people that were interested in knowing for certain what Paul was teaching them. They searched the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. This is how we know for certain. Well, as Peter concludes, there's a response by the people. And I want to take a look at this because a couple more imperatives come into play here in Peter's response to these people. But let's first look at their response to what he said to this point. In 237 here, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Well, this shows us a very important truth, and it's this, that the gospel takes the whole person. The gospel involves the entirety of who we are. Our entire identity is wrapped up in this gospel. And what we see here in these words that Peter has said is if you study rhetoric and if you study speech, it's likely that you'll be introduced to three Greek words that will summarize uh, what the content of an effective message should be. Let me move this up here where you can see it a little better. Uh, it is logos, pathos, and ethos. And these three words, what they mean in turn is logos deals with a message, deals with the information, deals with the mind. And this is seen in the verse that we studied by when they heard this. In other words, the word for hearing here is not simply one that, that they were passively hearing, like they received the sound. No, it is more of a, they listened to what he said. They received the message. And that is the logos. Then their emotions are involved. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And this is the emotional part. And people will tell you, if you are going to be an effective speaker, you are going to try to grasp the mind and the emotion and then the will 
of your hearer. That's the ethos, the will. And their will is captured because they say to Peter in response to what he's just told them, what shall we do? And so their whole person is affected by this. They not only understand what he's saying and receive the information, but then they have a response to that information. They're cut to the heart. Why? Because they crucified Jesus. Many of the same people there that day were likely the same people that were shouting from the crowd at Pilate, crucify him, or mocking him while he was on the cross. And here they are gathered for yet another holiday, the very next holiday in the city of Jerusalem from all over the world these people have come. And this guy says, you remember what happened last time we were here? This Jesus was crucified. You crucified him. But he is both Lord and Christ, and he rose from the dead. And so they have an emotional reaction to this, and and it's such that they are resolved, what do we do about this? What have we done? This blood is on our hands. This is the conviction that has come to them. And this is the powerful thing about the Gospels. It grabs the entire person. Is this not what we were told by Jesus, how it ought to be? This is to be expected. Look what it says in Mark 12, 30, is Jesus defines what it is to know God, what the ultimate commandment is. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In other words, the whole person is involved, and therefore we should minister to the whole person as we proclaim the gospel. We need to bring it all to bear on them. We need to bring forth, like Peter did, the whole story. Our relationship with God is all-encompassing. It's not to be relegated to any one part. It's not simply spiritual. It's not simply mental. It's not, not simply emotional kind of thing. It is the entire human being along with the will. We have to give the facts. We have to give the implication of those facts. And we have to make an appeal then to the will of people too. If we only give information, we only affect the mind. If we just tell of the crucifixion, we might only affect the emotion. Or if we just point out someone's sins, we might only evoke guilt in them and emotion. And if we just tell the people what to do, we'll come against challenging their will. And when you come directly against someone's will without any information to back it up, you're not going to win that. It's going to become a battle of wills and then pride slips in. The mind is affected by who Jesus Christ was, the story of what he did, the evidence of what he did, and then how we crucified him. Now it becomes personal, our guilt before him. And you might say, you know, I don't see this as personal to me because what Peter preached was he was preaching to these people. He said, you crucified Jesus. That's what cut them to the heart. But when we understand the theological implications of what Jesus did on the cross, we understand that every human being who has ever lived had a part in it as much as those shouting crucify him, as much as those who betrayed him, as much as Judas who sold him out. We have a part in that, in that it was for our sins he was put upon the cross and took the wrath of God in our place. This should cut us to the heart because as we understand what he did, we understand he did it for us. And then our message must contain 
what it is we ought to do. This is when Peter says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. This repentance is an important word. It's a common thread in all of the gospel. It is the most important element of salvation. It's the most repeated element of salvation. I want you to think about the scene of Jesus being crucified when there was a thief there that was a couple thieves, one on either side, were railing against him, were mocking him, but one of them changed and one of them said, you know what, we're getting what we deserve, but this guy, he didn't do anything wrong. And he asked Jesus to remember him when he entered into his kingdom. And Jesus said to him, this day, you will be with me in paradise. In other words, that man was saved. And it's clear as we read the conversation, as he goes from mocking Jesus to defending Jesus, we see that this man repented. Now, he didn't have time to be baptized. He didn't have occasion to join a church. He didn't have any time for any of those other things. But you know what? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross was not baptized but he did repent. So this is important. Peter says, repent and be baptized. I want to show you how common this is said here. He says it, of course, here in verse 38, but he's also going to say it again in chapter 3, verse 19, the summary there of what he says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. In chapter 8, verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, he says to Simon Magus, who was uh, offering to purchase the Holy Spirit. And look what Paul says as he's in Athens, he's speaking to people who, you know, don't even know anything about Judaism. He's so far removed from Jerusalem at this point, and he preaches the gospel a little differently to them because of their context. But look at the message, the same message. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands people to repent. This was Paul's emphasis there in that sermon. This should not be a surprise to us. This is what Jesus came preaching. Jesus came preaching uh, just like John the Baptist did. Look at Matthew 3, 2. John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus comes along and he, he reiterates the same message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When he sends the disciples out, they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And this is something that comes time and time again. Uh, they had questions for Jesus. They asked him about these things. Do you think these Galileans that were killed by, by essentially killed by Pilate, um, do you think these were worse sinners than anyone else? And he says, no, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And so Jesus was proclaiming the universal necessity of repentance for all people. That I want you to imagine in your mind the very worst and horrible person that you can imagine. The most wicked sinner who did the most atrocious things against all of humanity and against God and against nature. And I want you to imagine this person in your mind and I want you to imagine and understand that they are commanded to repent. 
Now I want you to imagine the most holy person you've ever met, the one who who never hurt anyone, who went their lives without seeming to do any kind of harm, was always pleasant, was always someone that was to help, was always someone doing good works. Jesus would say likewise to them, repent. You see what he says here? Unless you repent, you will likewise perish, he said, to those who were wondering about these other people who appeared sinful. The need for repentance is universal. This is the primary and most basic message of the gospel. It is trustworthy to say that Jesus came to save sinners. Sin was the problem. He came to solve it. And therefore, repentance is the central and correct response to the gospel truth. This is a key theme in the book of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3, you have various letters to churches, and many of them are told to repent. In chapter 16 in the book of Revelation, what marks the unbelievers, what marks those people who knew it was God bringing judgment upon the earth and still refused to repent, what what marked them was this lack of repentance. They did not repent and give God glory. It says in verse 11, they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. You see that? They cursed the God of heaven. Not just any God, not just God in general, but specifically the one real God, the one who rules in heaven. They cursed him and did not repent of their deeds. Repentance is the single most important element of salvation. It is the most basic response to the truth that the human being can have. And it is absolutely necessary for every human being to do it. Does repentance therefore save you? Is it an act that saves you? No, it is an act through which you are saved. In other words, repentance is the number one most important mark of true belief in the gospel. Repentance is the number one most important response to true faith in the gospel. So he says not only in verse 38 to repent, but he says repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, this is an interesting and very important word, this word for right here. It says, in the name of Je- be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. In this context, the word for here does not mean to accomplish the forgiveness. In other words, it's not baptism that will accomplish this forgiveness, but it is baptism that is done on account of or on the basis of forgiveness. This verse is not teaching that baptism accomplishes salvation. If it teaches that, it is in direct contradiction to other clear statements in the Bible. Statements like, by grace you are saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. Um, It is not by works, lest anyone should boast. We are commanded to be baptized. Jesus commanded us in the Great Commission, go and make disciples, baptizing them. That is one of the essential elements of making a disciple. But that comes after faith. When you look up the various formulas of salvation throughout the uh, 
throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, what you're going to find is you're going to find the common element is always faith or believe. And that's what you're going to find. Faith and belief are the same word in the original language. And what you're going to find is that is a common thread. Baptism is sometimes there. Receiving the Holy Spirit is sometimes there. Sometimes there is being forgiven. Sometimes there is, is, is repentance. But always behind it all is faith. Repentance and being baptized, receiving forgiveness. These are all results of faith. Baptism is a result of salvation, not a cause of it. This is what was seen all the way back in the time of John the Baptist. He says, I baptize you for repentance. And he uses for in the same way here to say, uh, because you have repented, I'm going to baptize you. In other words, it was symbolic of the repentance bringing the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing from sin, as it were. So Peter does not include baptism in his other sermons in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 10, he doesn't mention baptism. And interestingly, in Acts chapter 10, when Peter preaches to Cornelius and his family, he preaches in the house of Cornelius his first sermon to Gentiles. When he's preaching there, the Holy Spirit comes upon those people before they were baptized. That's very important to understand because if you try to make a formula that baptism is what brings forgiveness and salvation, then you're going to run into trouble as you run into these other texts in the book of Acts where baptism is either absent or it comes later or the Holy Spirit coming is not mentioned at all as it was with the Ethiopian eunuch. So these are very important points as you study this. What you will find is faith is the common thread. Warren Wiersbe, in his Bible Exposition Commentary, points out that if baptism is indeed required for salvation, then all those good people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, who are commended for their faith in the promises of God, all the greats like Moses and David and the prophets and, and all these others that have gone before, they're lost because baptism wasn't a practice. It's never mentioned for all of those people. And so we have to reconcile that clearly. What the Bible is teaching us in Hebrews 11 is that salvation is by faith. And so we see faith always results in works. This is what James says. This is in accord with what James says, that true faith will always result in some kind of a work, some kind of a sign, some kind of a visible expression of that faith is real faith. Now what we're going to see is we're going to see four essential elements for the salvation experience as we see them here. And we're going to see them come time and time again throughout the book of Acts. And I wanted to point these out. They are repentance, baptism, forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit. Now there's other things that happen, but these four things are very often seen. Sometimes the emphasis is on one over against another. But these things are always present in the conversion of a human being. You will not be converted without repenting. You will not receive forgiveness of sins if you're not really converted, you don't really believe. And we're, we're going to see then true faith is followed by obedience and baptism. And then we're going to see every true believer receives the Holy Spirit of God. And is that not 
Peter's promise right here. He says here, he says, for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's confident about this. He doesn't say you might. He doesn't say if you're good enough. He doesn't say if you qualify. He's saying repent and be baptized because someone that repents and someone that baptizes or gets baptized is likely someone that truly believes and anyone that truly believes is going to receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is an unmistakable element of the human response to salvation that we're seeing here. And I want you to take a look here at his final imperative down here in verse 40. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Well, I talked about these basic elements of salvation here, the repentance, baptism, forgiveness, Holy Spirit. But there's one unmistakable element that's absolutely essential uh, for all believers, and that is a response. All these things are responses. To repent is a response. To get baptized is a response. Okay, To experience a forgiveness of sins comes after one's, one believes, and to receive the Holy Spirit comes after one believes. But the unmistakable point here that Peter is making and that we see in this interaction here is that action is required by a human being in response to salvation. Action is required. All true faith will be accompanied by some kind of a work. And that's why he goes on to tell them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. In other words, there's an element of our will. There's a real element of decision here, of choice being made here. This is not an illusion. We know that salvation is com something completely accomplished by God, but it is never accomplished without the response of an individual. And so this is why as we proclaim the gospel, we can say, be saved. Save yourselves. Respond. Repent. These are the things that we can urge someone to do. And this is the commanding preaching that is demonstrated to us by Peter here. There's no reason to think that any human being is saved without their response to the gospel. So Peter goes on to encourage them for response. Save yourselves. We must make that appeal. We must and we can demand a response to the gospel. What I want us to understand this day is this, that as we go and preach the gospel, we are given all authority in heaven and on earth by Jesus Christ to accomplish this task. We have not only the right, but we are commanded to make this appeal to every human being to be saved. We have the right, like the emergency broadcast system, to interrupt life as they know it and say, hey, look here. This Jesus who came was crucified for your sins. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel that you can be saved. This is the appeal that we make. 
This is the message of the gospel. And yes, it's foolishness to the world. We're told very clearly that it's the wisdom of God, but it's foolishness to the world. Nevertheless, we have all authority and we have the command to go and do it. So when we do it, we do it with authority. We do it as those who have all authority to tell people what to do. We have a higher authority than their governing authorities. We have a higher authority than their parents. We have a higher authority than their schools. We have a higher authority than anything whatsoever on earth they can find to obey. God is a higher authority. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we serve this risen King. And by the same power that raised him from the dead, this same power dwells in us to enable us, to empower us, to go and bring this message, to empower us ourselves to be saved. And so it is with all power and with all authority that we go and make this appeal and we encourage people and we tell people, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And look at the response here. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. This is our primary purpose is to proclaim this gospel, to continue the work of Jesus and John the Baptist, to bring the good news that salvation has come and that salvation requires a response. So enter into eternal life. Turn from death to life. Turn from your sins to God's way of doing things to the truth, to the one who encourages. Do you understand the power that this brings? Because this is not just an arduous task. We're not just calling someone to do something uncomfortable, to give up everything they love. We're calling people to life itself. And it is life abundant. And there is no greater fulfillment for a human being than to be united with the one true God, to be reconciled to him who created them, to come into alignment with that with which they were made to mesh, that the human being was made to come into contact with God and to relate to God. And, and what happens there is the cure to everything that ails us. No, I don't mean the physical cure to physical ailments, the real spiritual cure to the despair, to the hopelessness, to the difficulty, to the addictions, to the sins that people have in their lives today. And we're talking about freedom from bondage to sin and to death and to the ways of the world and to Satan, to freedom in Christ, freedom to be who you were literally made to be, freedom to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We were told that the gospel is this, and this is what Jesus quoted in a synagogue in Capernaum, that he was to proclaim liberty to the captives liberty to the captives. We invite people to the one true God, and we have all authority to do it. Let's pray. Father, it is my sincerest prayer that myself and my hearers here, that all of us 
form this great conviction of not only the urgency and the necessity of taking this message, but the authority with which we go, the authority that allows us the audacity to interrupt the life of a human being and to proclaim this truth in their hearing and then to demand that they respond, that they repent, that they be baptized. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to execute this as your servant Peter did. Only let us do it to our neighbors, to our relatives and friends, to our co-workers, to the people we meet in public. Let us do it to our communities and to all those around. Lord, give us the faith to proclaim as boldly as Peter did in the early apostles this great message of salvation. Lord, let us each make sure that we have ourselves grasped hold of it. As Peter said, to know for certain that we would know for certain that indeed we stand in the salvation of Christ. I pray you would reveal that to every hearer this day. Convict their heart of the ways in which they fall short and grant them the faith to come to repentance and relation with you. Lord, I pray this day that you'll make yourself known by this proclamation of your gospel truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope that's been uh, enlightening to you. I hope it's been helpful to you. I want to encourage you to contact us. You can find out more about our church at whitesrun.org. You can also contact us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. I hope this has been a beneficial time, and if it has, there is much, much more to go along with this. So I pray that you'll investigate these things for yourself. Search the scriptures to see if what I'm saying is true. Read the Bible over and over again and get involved with a Bible-believing church. We can help you do that. If you will contact us at whitethronebaptist at gmail.com, we can help you find a Bible-believing church in your own area that you can get connected with, that you can begin to explore these great truths with. May God bless you. Amen.